Hi everyone, and welcome to The Roadmap, the podcast from the commercial technology team here at Bristos. I don't know about you, but over the last few months, it's felt impossible to escape from think pieces, comment articles, and hot takes on generative AI. That initial excitement seems to have died down a little bit in recent weeks. As of October 2023, it's being reported that web traffic to one of the most prominent generative AI tools has been falling for three consecutive months. So maybe the initial public hype has peaked. But what's interesting is that while the news cycle may have moved on, it feels like businesses are just getting off the starting line. A survey of CFOs by Deloitte last month suggested that 42% of businesses are already experimenting with generative AI to at least some degree. This episode is aimed at that 42% and all the other businesses that are considering joining them. I'm fortunate to be joined by two experts from our team who can help us cut through the noise, and I know I've been doing loads of work with clients on generative AI projects, Vic Karana and Anna Kapol. How are you both doing? Yeah, well, thanks, Will. Yeah, very well, thanks, Will. Nice to see you make your debut on the roadmap. Thank you very much, Vic. Our plan today is to focus on how businesses are not just using generative AI, but using it to build products, tools, and services, whether those are offered to their customers or just used internally. We'll start by chatting about what we've been seeing businesses doing in this area, and then try to dig into, not too deep, how those solutions are being built on a technical level. And then, as we are lawyers, we'll finish up by exploring some of the legal issues that businesses are facing when they start not just using, but integrating generative AI. So Vic, how are some of our clients playing with generative AI? What kind of problems and tasks are they using it to solve? Thanks, Will. So the way I'd put it is, in the first wave we've seen over the last year or so, uh, we've seen people using public versions of generative AI tools like ChatGPT, in their daily work, or maybe their employer has bought an enterprise grade version off the shelf. And we've sort of covered those issues in the previous episode on on AI. And a lot of people are finding those uses enough to deliver quite a lot of value. So first drafts of marketing material, summarizing documents, answering lots of basic queries. And they've been happy enough using those tools on the basis of standard online terms. And in many cases have introduced policies for their people on what acceptable use looks like and, and some appropriate security guardrails. But now in this next wave, we're seeing more strategic uses of generative AI and really a wider ecosystem of model providers and service providers. Pretty much a serious business-to-business industry is arising around generative AI, basically to allow businesses to use these tools in more sophisticated ways, so in ways that are more tailored to their needs, more grounded in their own data and their context, more accurate, um, and even addressing some of the security, confidentiality, and IP issues we've talked about previously. Um, They're even allowing people to build products powered by the large language models that underpin these tools, as, as you've referenced. So for example, in healthcare, if you were to just ask ChatGPT to perform medical diagnosis, it, it might not be able to do that very safely. But if you're a healthcare provider and you can connect that model that underpins ChatGPT with your own sets of patient data, maybe you can develop an application that can potentially make a more accurate diagnosis. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. But to take advantage of that, you know, businesses need a strategy, they need to identify the right use case where Generative AI is adding value beyond some productivity gains and also adopt the technology in a quite a more integrated way. And with that comes more complex solutions and more legal and commercial questions that lawyers and business leaders need to be aware of. 
Yeah, another thing that's arising is that generative AI is also impacting the next generation of new technologies. So for example, software engineers may use generative AI tools to assist in code writing. While code writing assistance has been around for over 40 plus years, for example, Anita Clock and Jan Chodek filed a patent for a syntax highlighting system in 1982. The modern day AI tools like GitHub Copilot powered by OpenAI Codex or the open source StarCoder are helping coders write code faster, for example, by autofilling repetitive code patterns. And one of the things I think it's really interesting to bear in mind here is it's not just the high tech industries that are being disrupted. A lot of use cases for generative AI can be found in more traditional industries as well, not necessarily to disrupt, but maybe to deliver efficiencies in the way that things are currently done. So for example, in the manufacturing or automotive industries, we've seen products using generative AI to help surface knowledge to operatives and engineers to help with things like maintaining and troubleshooting machinery. And some of these examples involve using generative AI in its raw form, if you will, exactly as it's provided by Google, OpenAI, whoever it happens to be. But some of them involve integrating those raw generative AI services with other systems. So Annika, could you maybe talk to us a bit about how and why a business would want to integrate generative AI with other systems? When using generative AI models for an enterprise purpose, the context that is provided to the model is important in generating the output. The more context that the model has, the more accurate the output will be. This is important because the more accurate and reliable the output is, the more useful the output will probably be for enterprise purposes. Using an off-the-shelf tool like GPT 3.5 or 4 or BARD could work really well for some enterprise use cases and is a quick way to get up and running with generative AI. You can also use the public-facing version of these models, which are fine-tuned on human feedback data or the code. But a drawback of using the -the off-the-shelf tool is that when a user asks a question, the only thing that the model has to work with to produce an answer are the vast amount of data it's been trained on and the text that the user types into the chat window, which is the prompt. This input or prompt will then drive the output that the LLM generates. It's important to remember that not all information is publicly available and therefore the LLM may not be able to answer every question yet. So to take a practical example, let's say that I worked at a well-known drinks company and I asked ChatGPT the question, what's the most important ingredient in the secret recipe for my beverage? It's going to struggle to give me a reliable answer in its raw form. Yeah, exactly, Will. We're seeing businesses start to integrate generative AI tools in order to overcome this hurdle. A common way of doing this is to build a system or an interface that takes a question that a user has asked, but doesn't immediately send it to the model to generate a response. Instead, the user's query is first enriched with additional information from the business's own database. That enriched query is then sent to the LLM, which basically gives you a much better chance of getting an accurate answer as it has more context in the prompt. The reason that the output is more accurate and reliable is because the LLM is not only using the public data available online that was used to train the model. Instead, your input is enriched with your enterprise data that is focused on your specific enterprise strategy and needs. So let's continue with the same example. If I ask, what's the most important ingredient in the secret recipe for my beverage to chat GPT now, it'll give me some generic information about it being a trade secret. But what if instead I built a system that takes my question 
and then uses it to search through all the various internal documentation that I have available to find a relevant context. And one of those documents might be the actual formula for my beverage. So the system takes the text from that document, combines it with my question, and then sends the whole lot to the AI to generate a response. I now have a system that can talk to me about the secret recipe for my drink, which the model couldn't do without being integrated with my data. You've got it. In essence, that is how this tech stack would be set up. There's also a lot of additional complexity around how a system or interface may search through your data and how you get the various components of your tech stack to interact with each other, for example, using APIs. We won't go into too much technical detail on this episode, but hopefully our listeners get a sense of the benefits of enhancing a prompt. And this is fortunately easier than potentially fine-tuning an instance of the model. Yeah, we, we, won't, we said we won't get too technical, but just because we're seeing new different types of services and systems across our, our desk, it, it might be just worth unpacking briefly to achieve what you've sort of described there. We're seeing uh, companies uh, working with more third parties and what are those third parties doing? You know, in some cases, there are vendors who can process your data and turn it into a form the model understands, so enhancing the prompt in the way you describe. Um, using something called a vector database, just introducing some more terminology for people who are not already uh, across it all. Um, then there are vendors who can fine tune an existing model for you. So you, what you can end up with is effectively your own kind of more specific curated model. And then there are vendors who can ensure that the content generated by the LLM is somehow fact-checked or at least referenced against its source in the training data. And one of those processes is called reference augmented generation. But whatever the architecture, and I definitely am not going to try and cover them all, you know, companies are essentially working with more vendors. There's more development time, more cost, more data sharing in the cloud, probably more contract terms, and maybe even more risk overall to achieve that benefit. And then, you know, what you're doing with that LLM powered product or service could put you in the remit of new AI regulation like the EU AI Act, which we may come to a bit later. I'm sure we will come to it. We've talked a bit about the use cases that businesses are trying to address, and we've had an overview of how the generative tech might be used as part of a larger system. And it sounds like really we're talking about moving from using generative AI as an off-the-shelf product in itself to using it as a component of a solution. And I can't help notice that this all sounds quite involved. We're in a different world here from just subscribing to yet another software-as-a-service product. So what are the barriers to entry here, Annika? Can any business with an IT team get started? Yeah, so that's a really great question, Will. And in essence, the answer is yes. Um, But they may want to also use a third-party service provider. So from our perspective, at the moment, we're seeing three key costs for our clients. The first commercial cost is getting the data ready. So as we mentioned, a key ingredient is to store the data and files that you want to use to provide the LLM with context. An increasingly popular way that we've seen our clients do this is to use third-party providers to prepare and refine their enterprise data. Regardless of whether this is done by your in-house team, as you suggested, Will, or a third-party provider, it will take significant engineering effort to prepare and refine your enterprise data. The second commercial cost, if you go down the path of building the component or interface that Vic mentioned, is that there will be some development costs of doing this. So again, either this can be done by your in-house team if you have the capabilities and skills or by a third-party software developer. And the third commercial cost are API calls if you build a component that has a large LLM sitting behind it. LLMs use tokens rather than words or numbers. 
These tokens can be a single letter or common groups of letters. For example, EN or ING may be one token rather than two to three letters. When you make an API call between your own systems of the third-party service provider systems and the LLM, then the total number of tokens will determine the price of the API call. The total number of tokens in an API call affects how much your API call costs as you pay per token. The cost of the API call will be calculated on the total number of tokens in your input and the total number of tokens in your output. It's important to remember that the number of input tokens and the number of output tokens may be different. It'll also impact how long your API call takes, as generating a long output with more tokens will take more time. And finally, whether your API call works at all, as the total number of tokens must be below the model's maximum limit. For example, this is approximately 4,100 tokens for GPT 3.5 Turbo. So that's really interesting, Annika. I don't know if anybody talks about the API economy anymore, but it's definitely the case that we've had API as a service products for quite a while now. Things like text-to-speech conversion APIs or image recognition, things like that. There are even products like What3Words, where the whole business model is built on metering API calls. But I think it's new that we're now in the world where it's not just the number of calls you make that determines the cost, but the number and the complexity of those calls, which makes perfect sense if you think about it, because the more complex the request you're sending to the generative AI API, the higher the compute cost for the service that's processing it. Yeah, but it's slightly different to What3Words because with What3Words, you have an idea of the total cost of the call because uh, you have an idea about how long the output will be. Whereas here, you don't know how long the output will be. So how many tokens you'll be paying for in the response that the LLM generates. This is actually a very good reason to be specific and clever with your prompt as it may help you to control your costs. You could ask the LLM to generate a response that's approximately three short sentences instead of an open-ended prompt that could potentially generate a long output. This could allow you to control to a certain extent how many tokens are used in the output and how much you are in turn paying. Now, so far, I think we've been doing really well in resisting our loyally instincts, but maybe now it's time to give in. So what are the legal considerations here? And in particular, Vic, I'd be interested to hear what you think are the key differences in risk between buying generative AI just as a product and building a homegrown solution around a generative AI service. Yeah, thanks, Will. About, about time we moved on to some legal stuff, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think just to frame, I think, this section of what we'll talk about, I think there's a basic fact of this new wave and how these systems are being implemented, which means just a company can end up with more vendors and more contracts and sets of terms of use. And for a lawyer sitting there and having these things come across their desk, it can be hard to work out what each vendor's role is here. So for me, it's about knowing the right questions to ask that tease out the legal issues. And so how you can ultimately think about risk internally and how you might review the terms that are presented to you. Um, and I know we're going to get into some around data and IP. I mean, those terms themselves sort of tend to look like short form cloud contracting terms often presented as non-negotiable, but we're starting to see some success in adding you know, certain contract wrappers or addenda dealing with some key issues and maybe data processing and maybe information security. But the key is to kind of ask the right points, I was going to say prompts, probably not the right term for this podcast, given that meaning in AI, um, to, to make the vendor realize you know what you're talking about, that you can actually push them in the right areas. And I think we'll come on to that next. Since, since you do mention data, 
are there any particular things to bear in mind? Are the risks here just the same as those involved in using any commercially available generative AI service? Or do things change when you're integrating generative AI with your own systems and applications? Yeah, it's really interesting for legal teams to think about how data flows. So there are two key ways from a legal perspective that we see an organization's data potentially being exposed. The first is if your organization contracts with a third-party provider to prepare and refine your enterprise data, for example, Pinecone. You may need to consider if the provider will access your systems and databases directly or if any of your data will be transferred to the provider, so it's actually leaving your systems. The second is in the prompt to the LLM, regardless of whether you input this prompt directly or using a third-party service provider. This prompt is likely to contain additional enterprise-specific information that will hopefully generate a more accurate output, but also simultaneously expose the enterprise data to the LLM. Yeah, so we recently worked on an, on an example recently where we saw those issues come together, and that was with um, a, a company in financial services looking to work with a vector database provider that would help refine their data to improve the prompts, make them more more relevant. But what we found is having to arrive on some key questions to tease out what that vendor is doing when they say they're providing a vector database what is the data flow between the organization's proprietary systems where it holds its data and that vector database so sensible questions arose like is there a data transfer of that raw say investment data into a cloud-based um, database in which case the usual questions around dpas and and assessments and transfers come into play or actually is there something more complex going on which some of these vendors do offer which is to maybe pre-process that data in a way that turns into you know vector space kind of this mathematical representation of the data which doesn't actually hold the information itself and if that's what's being transferred maybe the security issues change or become less important so in, in terms of some of these architectures and how they work, they can dictate the level of legal risk around that data flow. You know, and then similarly, what's then, what is the, data, the, the database provider then doing? If they're then using your data to send an enriched prompt and an LLM, is there another transfer data there that actually you're not even really a party to that you need to understand and have the right legal guardrails in place? Um, and then say, for example, in that context, the financial services firm wanted to build its own chatbot for its teams that would harness the, the vector data and the LLM. Is that vendor building an application or interface? There might be some IP in that you, know, you as an organization may be looking to own. So there, I think you're talking about the IP and the software that you're building, whether that's internally or whether you're having it built for you by a third party. Is there a broader point here about IP ownership in any content that the system generates? or even the risk that its outputs will infringe the IP of a third party. Do we have a settled legal position on that? I mean, that, that is the hot topic in IP and AI right now, isn't it? Well, and you know, those, those issues around how they're described, you know, the input risk of what the AI vendor's done on training its data, potentially on copyrighted material, maybe in a way that's infringed the risk. Those cases are ongoing. We look forward to seeing what comes out of those where that's infringement. On your point about generated content, so the thing that the LLM is producing, whether that's protectable, again, you know, we've had a recent decision in the US state uh, suggesting that in that particular specific case around some artwork that was not copyrightable. So it's kind of interesting. I think the only thing I'd add here in the context we're talking about and the type of architecture 
is we're sort of talking about the LLM maybe being one step removed from the user here. So whether that's within a product or services or maybe even incorporating your own data, so it may be less obvious, but ultimately that content generated is still really powered by the model. And so the same IP copyright issues apply. Some of the examples and mitigations we've been talking to clients about to say, well, beware at the moment that there may not be IP in this. And even if there is, check your vendor's terms of use to see if you would own that IP, still apply it in a similar way. It's really interesting, Vic, that you bring up the vendor's terms. Actually, our team here at Bristow's has done a really deep dive into an analysis of all major AI vendor terms and conditions for the LLMs. Based on our analysis, the current state of the AI market indicates that vendors will not typically offer strong contractual performance commitments as they argue that these tools are used for a wide variety of purposes and not any one customer in mind and that actually the customer is better placed to assess whether the outputs meet their needs. Interestingly, Microsoft has recently broken away from this position and announced its co-pilot copyright commitment. In short, Microsoft has said that they will be responsible if customers are sued for third-party copyright infringement for using Microsoft's co-pilots or outputs, provided that the customer uses the guardrails and content filters built into the Microsoft products. And these guardrails and content filters currently include a functionality to reduce the likelihood of the co-pilots generating an infringing output. So that copyright commitment is a really interesting development, isn't it? So as of the date of recording, that commitment became effective just yesterday. And it suggests to me that Microsoft has recognized that for some customers, this is a real blocker to adopting the technology. And if they make this commitment, it could be a real sales enabler for them. The devil will be in the detail of the drafting, which I'm looking forward to getting my hands on. But exactly what will the guardrails be and how far will the commitment go? But maybe this does show that the, the direction that the legal terms are going to go in. But Annika, what if your vendor doesn't offer this kind of commitment? Is there anything that a business can do to mitigate the risks attached to a generative AI project? When thinking about onboarding a new AI vendor, legal teams could ask about the training process for the model and what data the AI vendor uses when training the model. Some of the big vendors currently state on their website if they use stock images licensed from a rights holder, openly licensed work or public domain content in which copyright has expired. If the vendor has adopted a more rigorous and considered approach to the training process and the data the model ingests, then it may reduce the risk of the model's output infringing a third party's intellectual property rights. Before using a specific output, the internal legal team could also run general searches to assess if it may infringe a third party's IP. Um, Vic mentioned that there are now third party tools that could help with this. And also it's important to remember that infringing outputs of a model may be co-caused by the customer's choice of input prompts, not just the underlying uh, data in the model. At an enterprise level, companies could consider internal training for their users on best practice for prompts and or employ a prompt engineer to help reduce the input risk of generating infringing outputs. Thanks, Annika. We've got time for one more topic, and I'd just like to touch on regulation. It's almost a cliche at this point to talk about how fast generative AI technology seems to have developed over the past year and ask whether it needs to be regulated. And whatever your views on this, there's no getting away from the technology-specific regulation that's on the way, most obviously the EU AI Act. 
If a business is working on the kind of AI integration project that we've been talking about, how concerned do they need to be about AI regulation? Is this a concern that will sit with the provider of the underlying generative AI service or are businesses which integrate with it also at risk of being caught? Thanks, Will. So yeah, just on the act then. So the evolution of this has been really interesting. So we know that it regulates the intended purpose of what the AI is being used for. So in some real edge cases, some of those uses are going to be prohibited, but some of them are going to be what the act calls high risk. And in those cases, you know, they're permitted, but it'll, it'll impose an end-to-end -end product liability style regulatory regime. But the European Parliament more recently, or in the last few months, has included foundational models within the scope of the Act. And obviously that's a bit different because those models are more general purpose, as we've discussed, and can be used for many things. So that probably widens the scope of the Act, maybe quite significantly. So what does that mean for companies using and embedding LLMs in the way we've been describing, and even when they're building their own products around them, they should be aware that that kind of use, that what we set up here, is potentially bringing them within the scope of the act. They could be seen as a provider or a user of a foundational model and then subject to pretty rigorous requirements around design, testing and data governance, even if the thing they're not necessarily using it for is a higher risk use. And we could probably do a whole episode on the AI Act and we probably will do that quite soon. Um, the only other thing I'd add on regulation is, you know, just don't forget as a business, you've got your general internal compliance and regulatory requirements which still apply um, in your industry. So, you know, that applies for your use of AI outputs too. So if you're an advertising agency using some AI generated content, you've got to make sure that that content complies with the CAT code or whatever it might be. If you're a, a medical imaging company using AI to enhance medical images and make decisions, that's going to be subject to the same medical device rules you have. Um, and you, you don't, don't forget those basically. Wonderful. Vic, Annika, we've covered a huge amount of ground today. If you could each give just one or two practical tips to our listeners on how they can start integrating generative AI quickly, but with confidence, what would they be? Yes, I think mine would be around data. So what's happening with your enterprise data? Is it leaving your organization who has access to it? And also, it's really important to think about the whole process of generating an output. So for an internal legal team, the business team, the potential third party provider and the AI vendor. Vic? Yeah, thanks. Also, I mean, I, I would focus on that kind of complex vendor ecosystem we talked about and going into the project with a kind of mental checklist of questions to tease out what each vendor is doing. And then from there, you can understand, you know, what Alec is talking about in terms of data flows and also IP creation. Fantastic. That's all we have time for today. But if anything that we've been talking about has resonated with you, or if you'd just like to discuss your plans for piloting generative AI in your business, please do get in touch with any of us here at Bristos. So all that's left to do is to say thank you to our experts, Vic and Annika, for sharing their experience. And as always, thank you for listening to The Roadmap.